today because it's really going to be it's really going to be more, I guess, like a lecture than a sermon. So get yourself in lecture mode. Now, here's the deal. A lecture can change your life. Depends on what it's about. Now, the first service knew that so well that as soon as I said a lecture can change your life, I had like, amen. But in this service, I don't know, you know. But it actually can. <laughs> the book of, if nothing else, maybe, maybe two things will happen here today. This is, this is kind of my goal. One is that you might actually be inspired to go home and really get into Daniel. It's not a long book. It's only got 12 chapters in it. And it's got some amazing stuff there. And, there, uh, you know, you probably want a little help, but, but it's available. You can find it. And, and it's, it's a wonderful book to get into. Even more important to me, though, is that perhaps in looking at what we're going to cover today and what we're going to see today, it may give you a greater appreciation, a greater understanding of just how. And, and in the first service, I started to say magnificent and wonderful, but those words are not not the right words to apply to the Bible. They are, it is magnificent and wonderful, but there are other books that are magnificent and wonderful. How unique, how singular the Bible is among all books that exist anywhere and perhaps stoke your hunger for it. We're going to read the first 14 verses of the seventh chapter of Daniel. So would you stand with me? It's got some weird stuff in it, uh, but We'll get through this together, and this is going to be fun. This will be good. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream, and visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. The first was like a lion, and it had the wings of an eagle. I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground, so that it stood on two feet like a man, and had the heart of a man was given to it. And there before me was a second beast, which looked like a bear, It raised up on one of its sides, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. It was told, get up and eat your fill of flesh. After that, I looked, and there before me was another beast, one that looked like a leopard. And on its back, it had four wings like those of a bird. This beast had four heads, and it was given authority to rule. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. While I was thinking about the horns, there before me was another horn a little one, which came up among them. And three of the first horns were uprooted before it. This horn had eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that spoke boastfully. As I looked, thrones were set in place and the ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. 
His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were open. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Father, I thank you for the, for the wonder and the beauty and the power and the life of your word. I pray that the Holy Spirit would come and visit us and that you would bring all of those things and that even the dullest among us and the coldest and the hardest, would, would our hearts would be pierced today, Father, and that you would speak to us. We are your children. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Daniel is the Old Testament companion, really, to the New Testament book of Revelation. Uh, those two books have an awful lot in common. It contains fantastical images that deal with events on a world stage, just like Revelations does. And the question may come up in our minds, are these actual images? Well, yeah, they're actual images because Daniel saw them, and John saw the ones that he saw in Revelation. Yet they're not actual in a, in a fundamental, in a, in, a, in a prosaic sense. They're not, they're not actual in terms of prose. They're poetic Daniel saw a leopard with four heads, and yet there's never actually been a leopard with four heads, and certainly not one that had four wings on its back. And, and even if there had been, it certainly didn't conquer the world and become a, a world kingdom to reign in power. But this doesn't, this doesn't mean that these aren't truth. These does, in fact, they're, they're, they're bigger than what prose can be. doesn't lessen their power. The prosaic can rarely match the poetic in terms of, a power and strength. I'll give you an example. The Lord takes good care of me by watching over me and providing for me all I need. And because of this, I can enjoy life wherever I am, and I feel pretty good inside. He helps me to make good choices so that people won't think he's a bad God when they look at me. Even when I'm in a dangerous situation where I might die, I'm okay with that because I'm sure he can handle it for me. He even helps me feel comfortable when my enemies are all around. He provides for me spiritually and materially, and I expect life's going to continue to be pretty good until I go to live with him. Now, that's uh, that's a good testimony, right? Most of you probably couldn't. Repeat it back to me. But if I were to say it this way, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. 
He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now that one most of you know. It hits home with you. It's strong. Both of those testimonies had exactly the same number of words in them. Both of them said exactly the same thing. One of them came from the perspective, though, of talking about a shepherd and some valleys and and green grass and, and being a sheep. Poetic, but powerful. I used to have a, well, I still have a friend named Phil Nelson. When he was a little kid, he was... <clears throat> he was a preacher's kid as well, so you know he wasn't any smarter than I was. <laughs> and uh, and he remember growing up when he would hear, "The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want." From the King James, wondering if the Lord is your shepherd, why don't you want him? <clears throat> but generally speaking, the poetic is far more powerful than, and the symbolic is far more powerful than the reality behind it images can say bigger things than meal than, than mere realism uh the night sky is a beautiful thing and if the room were a little darker that's kind of what it looks like but it's a beautiful thing and it's an amazing thing and yet this is an amazing thing starry starry night you look at it and you know what the sky doesn't look like that but that takes you someplace you've never been before. It turns, the, it turns the night sky into something that you've never seen with your literal eyes. It's just something that you've seen in here. It's something that you know is there. You just can't see it in this fog that we're in. And because these images are, are, are bigger than realism, they can speak and they can continue to speak to the anointed while concealing things from the enemy, which is also part of what God has to do when he's presenting his word prophetically to people. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 through 10, Paul says this, We speak of God's secret wisdom, a wisdom that has been hidden and that God designed for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. See, if God spells everything out for the enemy, then the enemy maybe can, court, can sort of sort that out. Because it says here that none of the rulers of this age understood what God's secret wisdom was. And yet it was right there. <coughs> Excuse me. It was right there. If you were here three or four weeks ago when we covered Isaiah chapter 53, I mean... Bam, 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 bam. This is exactly what's going to happen to Messiah. He's going to be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. We're going to think that it was God who was doing it to him. Yet he's pierced for us. He's going to be taken away with injustice. He's he's going to be considered with with the wicked in death, but buried 
with the rich. I mean, it's all there. But you don't see it using the world's wisdom. You can only see it when there's an anointing upon your life. That's, that's how it comes. In fact, Paul goes on to say here in this particular passage, as it is written, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. When you get ready to read the word, and and I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again because I know not everybody's doing it yet. When you get ready to read the word, it's a good idea to start off with a prayer and go, God, I'm getting ready to read the word. Would you send the Holy Spirit to come and read this with me? And let me know what's going on in here. And you know what? He will. He will. That's a prayer that he will answer every single time. In fact, the Holy Spirit's already there. You just got what what you're really saying is quicken me to his presence. That's what you're really saying. This last week, Margaret and I met our favorite living author. Uh, this guy named Stephen Lawhead, and he he had a book signing over in uh, Cool Springs, and so we shot over there and shook his little hand, and bought his new book, and had him sign it and everything. It's so cool. Well, there you know there were a bunch of people around. I didn't want to tie up all of his time, but you know what I would love to do? I would love to just sit down with Lawhead and go. I want to talk about this. This is this is cool. What you know? Let's talk. Every time you read the Bible, you got the author right there willing to talk to you, ready to explain it to you. And that's why you can read some of these things and it's all of a sudden, wow. In the early service, when when I gave that testimony about Kenny, I was talking about, you know, that's God. I said, if you don't see God there, then you just need to go home and watch television. And there are people who will go through life with those kinds of things happening to them, and they don't see God. They really don't. It requires an anointing. And you say, well, you know, an anointing, uh, that's preachers, right? And teachers and elders and people like that. No, no, it's you. It's you. First John says you've already got that anointing. It's there. It belongs to you. So you can use it. So anyway... If God spells out everything, the enemy doesn't, doesn't have a chance. And, and also, let me just say one other thing before I move off of this point. Uh, I'm always leery of those who, uh, who have made the latest discovery of prophetic things by uncovering the, the latest calendar information and, and putting some formulas together. And, and once they, and this number comes out and bam, now we know when the rapture is going to happen or, you know, something like that. No, no, listen. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived. It doesn't come through a formula. It comes through an anointing from God. Well, the book of Daniel is mostly known for its, its great stories, uh, quite frankly. Chapters 1 through 6, oh, man. Three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den, Belshazzar, uh, the, the disembodied hand coming and writing at, at the feast. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Barbie, Barbie covered some of those last week in such a wonderful fashion. 
But that's mostly what it's known for. The first six chapters actually are where those stories are. But chapters 7 through 12 primarily cover visions that Daniel has. As does chapter 2. Actually, chapter 2 wasn't Daniel's vision. It was, it was Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But it it's, covers a lot of the same territory. And so, uh, well, let me tell you one other little, little interesting thing about the book of Daniel. Because I want to talk about the whole book here for a few minutes. Um, it's written actually in two languages. It's written in Hebrew from verse 1 of chapter 1 through chapter 2, the beginning of verse 4. And then starting in the middle of verse 4 through the end of chapter 7, it's written in Aramaic. And then chapters 8 through 12 are in, are in Hebrew again. And uh, obviously in your Bible, it's all in English. But I mean, that's so I didn't want to scare anybody, you know, away from it. But in the original language, that's that's the way it was written. So uh, if somebody were to come along and, and um, you know, these critics, uh, literary critics, and go, well, actually, what we have here is two books. You've got chapters one through six, which are the stories, and then you have chapters uh, twelve through uh, seven through twelve, which are are the vision. So uh, this was probably just two books that got put together, written by two different people. Uh-uh. I mean, the Aramaic thing kind of spans both of them. It, it's kind of crazy how that, that fits in there. It, it strongly argues for the unity of, of authorship of this book, that it, that it only had one author. And yet this book is so powerful that, that the veracity of it has been attacked probably more than any other book in all of Scripture. The book itself claims to come out of the period, be written around 605 B.C. to 537 B.C. Uh, 605 B.C. was the, the deportation to Babylon where Daniel went to Babylon. 537 was, was when Babylon fell because Daniel was still alive then and writes about the period right after the fall of Babylon. So that's when it claims to be written. However, as I said, this, this book is so amazing. Chapter 11... And I'm not going to read chapter 11. I'm not even going to tell you about it today. You can go read it for yourself if you want to. But it is so amazingly accurate in terms of world events that took place during the 2nd century B.C. that um, the 19th century higher biblical critics came along and went, "Uh, that's not prophecy. That had to be written after it happened. And so they tried to date the book around 167 to 168 B.C. And, and I know that most of you know this, but let me, let me do this real quickly. Uh, the B.C.A.D. thing, uh, imagine time is a line and right in the middle of it is, is the birth of Christ. Everything that happened before that is B.C., before Christ. Everything that happened after that is A.D. Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord. And so the numbers... The further away that they get from the birth of Christ, the bigger the numbers get. But on the other side, it works the other way. Uh, I'll show you what I mean. In 167 AD, um, that would have been 167 years after Christ was born. Um, Around 605 AD, that's closer to us. Uh, That would have been around the time of the the rise of, of Islam. That's about when that occurred. But if you go back the other way, 605 B.C., was when Daniel was taken to, to Babylon, and then um, uh, 167 B.C. would have been, oh goodness, 450 years or so later, but it would have been closer to us. So 
Like I say, I think that most of you know that. The 167 is, is interesting. The reason why they, they picked that date out is because it was around that time that Judah was undergoing some severe political oppression. Um, actually, it was from a, a particular ruler, a guy named Antiochus IV. So there's the Nashville connection. Uh, Antiochus IV, who called himself uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus the illustrious. I'm sure that all of his friends called him Epiphanes as well, especially when they were speaking to his face. Don't know what they called him behind his back, but I know what his enemies called him. They called him Epimenes, which means the madman, which is essentially what he was. He was very cruel. He, he did a, committed gross atrocities in the land of Judah and really everywhere that he went, but especially in the land of Judah. And the oppression was so severe, uh, that among the Jews there arose this group called the Maccabees, and some of you have probably heard of them. The Maccabees revolted against uh, Antiochus and were able to drive him out of the country. And so what the biblical critics had decided was, well, it must have been written around that time to encourage the people to enter into this revolt because uh, the stuff that's in there is so accurate and, and it's, it presents a picture of history that would make one sign up, make one join in. So their idea is that it was probably written about 450 years after it says it was written. (laughs) But that's man's ideas. And many scholars assume that that later date of authorship has been settled, but in truth it never was. It's only seriously in question if uh, if you stop your research before the middle of the 20th century. Because one of the reasons why they were sure it hadn't been written at the time it was written was because, oh, I'm sorry, chapter 11. Yeah, too accurate. Anyway, one of the, one of the reasons is because of this guy, Belshazzar. Uh, if, you, if you go back and read the, the literature of the early 20th century, late 19th century, they went, there was no King Belshazzar. And they were, in fact, right. There was no King Belshazzar, and so the author obviously was confused. He obviously didn't know what he was writing about. And so he wrote in the, in the middle of the second century BC. And here we are 2000 years later, and we know more than he knew. It's always amazing. It's always amusing to me that uh, people nowadays think that somehow they know more about what happened thousands of years ago than the people who lived thousands of years ago. I haven't quite sorted that out. Anyway, in the middle of the 20th century, uh, in fact, it was translated in 1950, there was, a, there was a, um, a cylinder that was discovered that was called the Cylinder of Nabonidus. Now, Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon. They, they knew that. He was, he was the last one. And when this cylinder was discovered, they found out some very interesting things about Nabonidus. He was not your typical Babylonian king. Um, one of the reasons why he wasn't a typical Babylonian king was because he didn't worship the Babylonian god Marduk. He reigned for 17 years, but during that 17 years, he spent at least 10 of them essentially in political exile from Babylon because he didn't want to worship Marduk. He wanted to worship the moon god that had the interesting name of Sin. And so 
he was away from Babylon for at least 10 years of that 17-year period. In fact, he didn't come back to Babylon until after it fell. And during that time, they found out on this cylinder that the crown prince, his eldest son, who was the regent in his stead, was a guy named, of course, Belshazzar. And so Belshazzar was, in fact, king in everything but name only. He had, he had all of the authority of the king. He was able to make all the decisions for the king. Uh, he was able to, to live in the palace, uh, sit on the throne. He could do everything the king could do except the New Year's festival, which was something, something called taking the hands of Bell. Now, unless Bell was a woman, I don't think I would want to really take Bell's hands. But anyway, he could do everything else. And if you, and, and more interestingly is if you go back into, uh, into chapter five of Daniel and you read about Belshazzar, you, you discover that they keep referring to Nebuchadnezzar as his father. Keep referring to it and keep referring to it. It, it, it almost gets kind of annoying the way they refer to it. Well, there's a reason for that as well. Because it turns out that this Nabonidus guy, not only uh, did he not want to worship the Babylonian god, uh, Marduk, he was, not, uh, he was not a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, apparently, Nebuchadnezzar's line ended right before him. Now, whether he had a, a revolt and took over, uh, or whether Nebuchadnezzar's descendant was an idiot and the people didn't want him and they decided they wanted Nabonidus instead, we don't know. But we know that Nabonidus was not descended from Nebuchadnezzar and so that kind of threw Belshazzar into a, into a questionable position. However, Belshazzar had a grandmother named... Let, let me see if I can... Uh, I, <laughs> that, that woman, Nicotus, Nicotus, Sounds like what's in cigarettes, doesn't it? Uh, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> that would be nicotine light or something. Uh, and Nictochris was a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar and was the queen mother and was the grandmother of Belshazzar. And so she is the woman in chapter 5 saying, Your father, Nebuchadnezzar, your father the king, I say, your father, Nebuchadnezzar, had this guy, Daniel, who could prophesy things. And I think you should call for the guy that your father, Nebuchadnezzar, had and bring him in. Because every time that, I mean, that, that is exactly what would have happened around Belshazzar. Those who were on his side, those who wanted to see him established, would keep reinforcing the fact that, yes, you are from the royal line, which he was on his maternal side. Now, here's the other interesting thing. About 30 years after Babylon fell, Belshazzar disappeared from history. And that's why the geniuses who were trying to say that this book had not been written when it says it had been written because Belshazzar didn't exist, that's why they didn't know about him. But the guy who wrote the book of Daniel knew about him. The guy who wrote the book of Daniel, not only does, does Belshazzar's existence argue that uh, not only does it not argue that he didn't know what was going on, it argues that he very clearly knew what was going on and was a contemporary of this period of time. So quickly, let me give you the overview of what Daniel is saying here. We're not going to be going into great detail with Daniel's prophecies today, but we're going to look at, at his overview of history from his vantage. The, the vision 
that Daniel had in this chapter is a companion to chapter 2 in the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Both of them speak about four kingdoms, uh, not kingdoms, I'm sorry, four empires that would come. And in, the, and in what we read today, Daniel is looking out over the great sea, and take my word for it, in prophecy, seas are people. And so the great sea would be all of the peoples of the earth and the four winds of heaven, the four directions are coming and churning up the great sea. And that's where these, that's where these empires come from. And he sees four beasts come out of this, this morass of, of people. And the first one of these empires is, is Babylon. It's, uh, in, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it was the, the head of gold that was on the statue. Uh, in the vision that we read today, it was a lion with, uh, with eagle's wings that was humbled and given the heart of a man. And if you go back and you read chapter 4 of Daniel, you'll find out what that's all about, exactly how that happened and how that took place. The second kingdom that he refers to is the Medo-Persian kingdom. And in, and in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, that was the silver part of the statue from, from, the, from the shoulders, the, the upper part of the torso here. Uh, two arms, um, a, a division that had been brought together. The Medes and the Persians had been brought together. And in this particular vision, the bear was raised up on one side and then raised up on the other. In the next chapter, in chapter 8, he goes into more detail about Medo-Persia. And in that one, it, it's, it's shown as a, uh, as a ram that had one horn that was longer than the other, but then the second one grew up longer. And that's exactly what happened with the Medes and the Persians. Uh, they, they came together. Initially, the Medes were the ascendant ones. Darius the Mede was the, was the one who was put in rulership over Babylon. But ultimately, ultimately the Persians became the ascendant ones. So that we actually refer to it now as the Persian Empire. But that was the second empire that was to come along. The third empire that was to come along was Greece. Uh, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, that was the, that was the abdomen uh, part of, his, uh, of the body. It was made out of brass and in this particular vision, it was a leopard. It was a leopard with wings on its back and, and four heads. Uh, in the next chapter, in chapter 8, it refers to Greece, and it, and it specifically names it. And in this one, it's, it's um, imaged as a, as a he-goat with a significant horn out, its, out of its head. And when that horn is broken off, four grow and take its place. And here's what that's all about. That significant horn was Alexander the Great. Uh, and in fact, in, in this next vision, the, the he-goat is flying across the ground. It, 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 uh, and the leopard was the, the fastest of all of these animals. So it was, it was the one that, that struck quickly and struck powerfully. But as soon as that horn was broken off, his, his kingdom was divided into four different sections. This has four heads <clears throat> in it. And the four sections were this. It was divided up among, among his generals. Uh, the Antigonid section, which was the western part of, of Macedonia and, and over into Europe. The uh, Attalid section, which was the eastern part of Macedonia and over into Asia Minor. Uh, the Ptolemaic dynasty, which would, would have been in the south and Egypt. And then the, the Seleucids, which were Syria. And, and the Ptolemies and the, and the Seleucids were the ones who really Israel was the most concerned with because it was right in the middle of them. Uh, and so that's exactly what happened there. And then the fourth, the fourth kingdom, <coughs> the one unlike the others is, is Rome. And in, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, 
that was, uh, that was the legs, and they were made of iron. And if you know about Roman history at all, you know that there was an eastern and a, and a western uh, kingdom in Rome, uh, one in Constantinople, one in, uh, one in Rome itself. And then ultimately it, it went down to the, the feet and the toes, which were made of part iron and part clay, which, which don't mix. Now, here's the deal. Here's the interesting thing about Rome. Uh, these others lasted for, you know, a few hundred years, a couple hundred years here, 300 years there. Rome lasted for over a thousand years. In fact, the sack of Rome didn't happen until the 16th century. And it never really ended. It just kind of dissolved. It just kind of morphed into something else. Now, here's the, here's the thing about the overview. Here's what Daniel is telling us. If you, if you go back to Daniel's point in history, if you're, if you're in Babylon, Babylon was not the first world empire, but it was the one that was going on then. From that perspective, you would tend to think that's the way it is. There's always, I mean, empires. And it'll either be this one forever or there'll be another one come and take its place. But no, there's going to be four. And at the end of the fourth one, there's not going to be any more world empires that will come to domination. That's the first thing that he tells us. Second thing that he tells us is that the story doesn't end there. In fact, the dream and this vision both had similar things. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the interpret, the, there was a stone that was, that was cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, and it destroyed the statue. And it says this, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock that was cut out of the mountain, not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold in pieces. And in this particular vision that we had, that, that we read today, he, he says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven, not a beast coming out of the coming out of the sea, coming out of the earth, coming out of the people. This one is like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. The overriding theme of Daniel is the important thing. I mean, people can get into Daniel and they can, they can get kind of crazy and they can come up with all kinds of numbers and they can come up with all kinds of formulas. But the important thing is this. There were going to be four more kingdoms, four more empires. That's exactly how many they were. The last one, the last one doesn't actually fall. It just kind of dissolves. And that's exactly what happened. You know, you may kind of go, well, I mean, what about, the, uh, we've heard of like the British Empire, huh? Hey, that really wasn't, you know, that, that really wasn't the kind of empire, a military empire that he was talking about here. And besides that, that was really just kind of a, of an extension of the Roman empire itself, because that's where that, that's, that's was the seed that was planted in Britain. All of the, all of the kinds of empires that we've, that we've had since then essentially were born out of that particular seed. Daniel knew that thing, but he said, that's not the end of it. And you know what? I am so glad 
Because as I look at, as I look at all of the political alternatives, and I can get in trouble for this, but I'll just get in trouble. As I look at all the, and by that I'm not talking about, you know, Sarah Palin or Barack Obama. I'm talking about capitalism, socialism, communism, any other ism you, you want to throw out there, um, democracy, monarchy, parliamentary, congressional. As I look at all of them, the problem is the same thing happens in all of them. The rich oppress and the poor get shafted in all of them. Every one of them. And there's a reason why. It's because they all come from the same place. They all come out of that churning sea that Daniel was looking at. But as he kept looking in the clouds of heaven, there was one like a son of man who came. And his kingdom starts out small, like a mustard seed, but it grows. And it finally takes over the earth, and it finally destroys, it finally throws down all of those empires, all of those dominions. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And when you, when you have the the anointing, the touch, the faith to believe that, to grasp that. Oh, it throws a whole different light on what life's all about and what, and what, what it means. I got to read you a quote here. I'm, I'm out of time, but I got to read you a quote, and it's not out of the Bible. It's out of Wired magazine. I, I got a real... Uh, cheap subscription to it. So I thought, I'll read it. And it's pretty cool. It's got some cool stuff in it. It's weird though. But I came across, I was reading a, a, um, an article about creativity. <laughs> it caught my attention. Called Where Ideas Come From. And, uh, and I came across one of those quotes that you know they put big on the page. So, that you have to read. So I did and I read this quote and I went, Oh, my goodness. This is so life without Jesus. And this is a quote. Technology is something that can give meaning to our lives, particularly in a secular world. And I'm thinking, when I come to the end when the day is over it will be such a comfort to know that i've been able to stream netflix it will all be worth it because we now have electric cars that's meaning have we really gotten there Particularly in a secular world. But this isn't a secular world. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And though empires may rage and the heathen may rage. 
There is one like a son of man who is presented before the ancient of days. And you know what? It goes on to say in that chapter, oh, I just I don't have time. Actually, that chapter interprets the dream. If you want to read the rest of the chapter, uh, interprets the vision. But it goes on to say that, that there's going to be a bad dude going to come along in the last days and he's going to oppress the people of God and it's going to look like he's going to win. But to them is given the kingdom. It's delivered to them. And they overcome him. And we know how that happens. By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Yeah. Stand up. Yeah. There's certain things we always do. We, we, We sing. We praise. We let it go. We, uh, we take up an offering, <laughs> except on Christmas Day and at Carol's by Candlelight. And we, uh, we hear the word, we take communion, and we pray for people. So uh, there are people here today I know who need prayer. So the altar, like I said, this may have been an, uh, a lecture rather than a sermon, but lectures can change people's lives and prayer can definitely change. But those who are going to pray for people, come forward. If you need prayer, you go ahead and come forward as well. We're going to, we're going to, and if you don't know Jesus, I mean, you know, if, if the most wonderful thing in your life right now is a, is an Xbox 360, you know, or, or something of that nature. Oh man, that's so dead. That is so dry. That is so meaningless. This is real. Jesus is real. He died on the cross for you. He loves you. If you, need to, if you need to give your life to Christ, we'd like to introduce you to Him. We're going to worship for a few moments. We'll, uh, you come, you get prayer while we wait for you.
always been one of my favorites about the Son of Man coming before the Ancient of Days. That's why I wanted to sing again that verse, Under the shadow of thy throne, still may we dwell secure. Sufficient is thine arm alone, and our defense is sure. Because that's the throne we dwell under. That very one. Raise your hand. Let me give you a blessing. May the God and Father of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who sent His Son into the world to destroy the works of the evil one and to usher in a kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy, may that kingdom be manifested in your life. May your confidence in Him be secure. May you have the anointing to see Him every day and every step that you take. In Jesus' name. Amen.